they're starting the file and there's giant backlog of filings is starting to work its way through the system. So I'm back to, I stopped marketing to tired landlords during the, um, during the, the pandemic, but now I'm marketing to them again because that's starting to open up and, and, and that's going to flow, flow big, I think. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Mm, my favorite ice cream. So I feel strange that I'm saying this because I'm not, I'm not generally a chocolate lover, but Tillamook's, jeez, uh, Tillamook has some chocolates, like chocolate... Chocolate chunks with more chocolate inside of chocolate <laughs> with a vein of chocolate running through it. And for whatever reason, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. You sound like my father-in-law. We uh, went to Culver's the other day for some milkshakes and he goes, what do you have that's chocolate in it? And they were like, well, we've got this chocolate, this chocolate, and this chocolate. And he said, that sounds good. And they were like, what? <laughs> yeah, all of it. Just just all mix it. it all together. <laughs> now you said Tillamooks. Is, um, is that the one in Oregon? Yeah. Is that the... Okay. So we were in Oregon um, this time last year and we drove past it. I never even heard about it. Small little town takes up the entire town. And I was yeah. like, man, I got to go in there and see what, see what they got cooking. The stuff's fantastic. And until recently, it hasn't been widely available on the East Coast. So it was something I discovered in Tillamook and you know, on the West Coast. And finally, some places are carrying it back East. So I'm, uh, Love it. I'm occasionally happy when I, uh, when I go for ice cream. Love it. Love it. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Real estate investor, uh, primarily a real estate wholesaler for probably you know, about 80% of the business. And I do a little bit of rehabbing, a little bit of landlord. Gotcha. Well, you are here to talk to us about real estate negotiations and uh, different ways we can kind of squeeze out extra profit and make sure that we uh, create a win-win deal here. But before we get there, take us back. Like, How did you even get started in real estate? I got started. What finally made me snap and got me started in it, I was I was drowning. I think isn't that how most people start? I was uh, right. uh, I, I was drowning financially, drowning in debt, and then I was literally physically drowning. I, I had I had a day job. I, after a while, I couldn't stand it. I didn't like having the restrictions on on me, on what I made, on what I could do. But I, I didn't know a way out, so I I saved up my vacation time, uh, spent money I didn't have. And went on a giant adventure trip with a bunch of buddies to India to go whitewater rafting, which was fantastic. It was pure escapism. Rather than focus on my $113,000 worth of debt, I just chose to escape and make it worse. And then on top of it, when we were going down the rapid, we hit a, uh, going down the river, we hit a giant class five rapid and I couldn't stay on the darn boat. And I went over the edge and got sucked underwater, which was. Fascinating and interesting and uh, and deep. You know, my friends will still make fun of me for it. Uh, you know, because it was just spectacle watching me go under with this stupid look on my face. But when I came out of that water after not being sure what was happening or if I was going to come up when I was running out of air and started to black out, I kind of felt like I got a second chance at things. I said, oh, I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not just going to spend myself into oblivion anymore. And I went back home determined to change things. Of course, when I got back home, nothing changed. I, you know, I still was 113 grand in debt, now even deeper in debt. I still had the same job. I still couldn't quit. Nothing was right. And that's when I needed to find a solution and, and real estate investing wound up being the way. 
Have you, uh, so first of all, incredible story, but have you ever heard of Eric Thomas? Do you know who he is? No. Motivational speaker. They call him the hip hop preacher, like super impactful. But one of his stories he tells is like, when you can't breathe, the only thing you think about is how you're going to get your next breath. And he tries to spin the story on like, you need to have whatever you're driving for in life, be that thing. Like the only thing you can think of is that, but he relates it to that. So I can't imagine being sucked under like that and not being able to breathe. Um, I mean, t- tell us the end of the story though. How were you able to get out of it? Did somebody pull you? Did the well, rapid stitch out? Yeah. I, I mean, eventually I, I traveled out of the rapid. I had a helmet on. I had a life vest on. I, I, I came above the surface. That was the funniest thing, Matt, because I got above the surface. And the first thing you do is gasp for a breath, but I couldn't actually take a breath because my entire esophagus was full of river water. <laughs> and I went, oh boy. And then I was thinking before I went, the, the travel doctor that gave me a bunch of immunizations and stuff said, hey, no matter what, do not drink any groundwater in India. It's very dangerous. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh crap. No, I'm still going to die. <laughs> came back with a lung full of it. Yeah. Uh, so you come back and ultimately decide like, hey, I've got to do something different in life. Did you know that real estate was going to be your path or how did you stumble upon it? Nope. I didn't have a clue. Uh, I I stumbled upon it because a, a friend of mine handed me a copy of Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It's funny Which, how that shows up it, it, all the time, right? Everyone every, probably, probably, you know, I would imagine 98% of your listeners have read it. It probably had a giant impact on them like it did on me. I mean, it hit me like a ton of bricks. That same frustration I had when I was drowning but didn't know what to do and how to uh, how to get out of the trouble I was in financially uh, was now it was answered. It was, hey, invest in real estate. Now, that was the answer. It didn't give me any of the idea how. And, and so I continued to just keep making giant mistakes as I got into real estate investing. Yeah. And now when you first got involved, were you doing the wholesaling? Were you buying turnkey properties? Like what, where was your first investment? Oh, my first, my first deal was a colossal mistake. I went out and bought a six unit building in New York City. Landlord friendly in New York City. And, uh, nobody was paying a dime. So I, I actually, all I wanted to buy was, was a problem, six problems. Nobody paying a thing. Uh, now I was financially drowning even more. I just basically grabbed a you know a weight and put it around my neck and was in was in big trouble because uh, I didn't know what I was doing you know I just knew hey and buy real estate but not how and what and why and when and and, and what type so I had never heard of wholesaling or I, I just hey you know I guess you buy a property and hang on to it and everything will be just fine yeah and, except that it wasn't yeah so how did you find wholesaling then by mistake that was the that was the beautiful thing had no clue what it was and I luckily. Uh, is as much as I was, you know, getting my teeth kicked in on that first deal, I kept marketing for more. And I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and I moved my marketing closer to the home. The, the reason I'd done New York City is my sister lives up there and we were partnering on it. Uh, but I, I moved my marketing closer to the home, got a property under contract that I figured, OK, this time I'm not going to I'm not going to landlord it. I'll, I'll fix it up. I'll rehab it because what could possibly go wrong? It was, it was basically the same horrible attitude I had. And I lucked out because at one of my local real estate investor meetings, another investor offered to buy it from me before I settled on it, which I didn't even know was possible. And I asked him, you could do that legally? Really? He said, yeah, it it ain't that hard, kid. Let me walk you through the process. You're just going to assign your contract to me and I'll pay you to take the contract off your hands, which, you know, was that's the definition of wholesaling. I just had no clue what the word was. I went, "Uh, okay. 
And so next thing you know, I walked away with a check for $22,819.66. Made almost 23 grand from doing nothing. And I went, Oh, I like this. Well, what, what if I could do this again and again and again? And I did. And that's what finally got me to my freedom. Gotcha. And it, I guess back then you were doing a lot of print ads or direct mailers. Yep. Print ads, direct mail, which I still do because I, I sometimes I think the old fashioned stuff still works better. Uh, bandit signs, uh, all, you know, networking, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. How many properties do you think you've wholesale at this point? Hmm. Not sure. I want to say I'm probably personally in the 80 something range and okay. with, with students that goes up a lot more because I do a lot of deals with students now. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about, let's talk about negotiation. First of all, what was your background to kind of lead you into the negotiation? Did you just get your teeth kicked in a couple of times uh, through this process or talk me through that? But you know, there's a point where you realize that Every deal you get, every lead you get, you have to make it into a deal. And rather than have it be random that somebody that said yes, it wound up being better if I could walk somebody through the process of saying yes. And at the same time, get their price down. The major thing that changed it for me was when I met a, a top negotiator, a fellow by the name of Roger Dawson. Absolutely changed everything for me. What, what kind of woke me up to the, this whole a way of thinking about negotiations differently, of thinking about it as a process, realizing that, you know, because everyone tells you they're great at negotiation. Everyone thinks they're this great negotiator. But when you break it down, there's actually a process to it and something you you can learn and get better at. And that's what Roger taught me. And when I got good at that, everything started to change. I got more deals and better profits on each deal. Yeah. So I you led me to water. What What is that process? Well, it's, <laughs> so it, it's a, it's a couple of things like understanding that the other side's got some pressure on them too. You're not the only one. You need the deal, but they need to sell. And when you spend time, I call it pinpointing. When you, when you pinpoint what their problem is, like get talking with them and dig down to what's going on in their life. Why are they a motivated seller? Why are they a motivated seller? What's motivating them? That's what you, that's what you want to figure out. Cause as they explain that to you, you can think about how you can package up a solution that would solve their problems. So now you know what the problems are. You put together a package that would solve it. Now it's just up to you to persuade them to say yes to you. And so you go through a number of techniques to keep dropping the price down and get them to say yes. So I believe that all sales is really just solving problems. Um, yes. What you're looking for in the sales process is you offer some sort of solution or have the ability in a tool set to offer a solution for a specific type of seller. Your goal really is to find out what that's, that, that problem is and see if you have the tools to solve it. Um, so you mentioned identify the pain point. Um, how, like, what are some questions or how can we go about identifying pain points? Is it yeah. as simple as saying, Tom, what's your pain point? Or do you have to ask uh, different questions to get there? Well, maybe, maybe a little more gentle. And, uh, if you, you know, we might technically call the pain point. They don't just start asking quite open ended questions about, Hey, why are you selling the property? What's that like? Tell me more. When do you need to sell it by? What's the time pressure for? What are you going to spend the money on? Oh, tell me more about that. So try to get them to kind of taste and, and almost experience what it's like once they've already sold it. Because then when you bring them back to the reality of today, that kind of stinks because they haven't sold it and they still have those problems. So there's a little bit of, you know, in sales, that would be called future pacing. 
you know, kind of get them to understand what it could be like and then pull them back to where they are today. But I find that open-ended questions just simply about their situation uh, will is enough to get the ball rolling. It's not like there's any, there's no ninja tactic or one particular question. Just have a conversation with another human being about why they're in trouble and watch what happens. Yeah. I also think like if I, if I don't know where to take a conversation and if I can only think of yes, no questions, I'll usually just say, what does that mean? You said, ask open-ended questions. Yep. Tell me more about what that means. And usually yep. what you'll find is that will give uh, space for that person to respond and give you more information and tell you a little bit about, more about what's going on, as well as, you know, for some of us slow people over here to uh, think of different questions that we could be asking. Yeah, it lets your mind, it lets your mouth catch up with your mind where, where it's at. It's also a matter of, uh, I've learned that when people talk at different paces and they think at a different pace and they've heard you at a different pace. And since I tend to be very fast paced, that means sometimes it's slower. So when I ask a question, don't be so anxious to ask the next question. Just back off for a minute because sometimes people will start, they might give a one word answer. But then they pause and they're getting ready to kind of say an entire paragraph. And if you cut them off because you're so busy wanting to move on, you're, you're cutting off them really opening up to you. And that process of them opening up by sharing things with you builds rapport between you and that motivated seller. And that rapport is going to be a big key to the process of getting them to say yes. Uh, a common question that probably is going through some listeners' heads right now who are in this business or not in this business is... You're talking about negotiation, but typically when somebody picks up the phone and wants to sell a house, they already have a price in mind. How do you get them off of that price or how do you handle the objection of saying like, we're way off on our numbers? Yep. <laughs> so that, that comes up most of the time. If they have a price in their mind, they're, they're out of whack or they've, they've, they've used some sort of online valuation tool and now they're stuck on that number. So a lot of times... It, you have to attack their number and the rationale behind it, but not attack them, right? Attack the source of their numbers. So do you remember in high school, in your math class, you, your teacher would, would say, show your work. That way they knew you weren't cheating. You had to actually show how you did the math to get to the answer. You didn't just yep. have the answer. So what I'll do a lot of times is show my work to the other person. So they understand what it is. I'll say, you know, you think your property is worth that, but let's actually run some comps together and I'll show them. Not what is worth all fixed up because that that's what I'm going to do with it. I, I want to show it what's it worth as is and bring them through those comps and show them what that actually is. And then if it needs to be fixed up, like, oh, well, what, you know, when you fix it up, it's going to be worth a lot. I'll bring them through that process as well and show them how expensive it is to fix up a property and make sure they're accounting for things like, uh, the cost of borrowing the money and the taxes and the commissions. And yeah, my profit too. That I got to, you know, sh otherwise if, you know, if somebody's asking 300,000 for their property and you offer them 150, they're, they're doing simple math and thinking you're making 150 grand. But we all know that that's not true. There's a lot of expenses in between, but you've got to show that to them. So you got to show your work. And a lot of times that will start to pull them off of being hung up on some price that they think the property's worth. Yeah, it's funny you say that. One of the things I uh, struggle with in dealing with commercial real estate brokers is they're like, hey, but you can raise rents and you can get it to this and that, et cetera. And I always am like, hey, Tom, great. You go do that and come back to me when that property has already done that and I'll pay what you want me to pay. Yes. However, if I'm having to do that, that means not only my money has to go into it, 
not only materials and contractors and all that, but my time has to go into that. So you're devaluing my time by telling me that, oh, you just do this and flip a light switch. Yes. I, and I, I, one way I, I handle that kind of as an objection handler is, you know, I, like that maybe it could be worth that, but obviously that would take a lot of work because it's not there now. I, I have to pay you for the value of the property of what it is worth today. I can't pay you on projected future value because then I'm just speculating. I mean, I might as well buy a lottery ticket or I might as well uh, buy some random coin or I might as well buy some random stock because I don't really know what's going to happen. So I tell people I can only pay you based on what it actually is today. That's right. That's right. One of the things I also um, think in negotiations, and I would love to hear your take on this, is the more specific you can get with a price, I think the better are you are in terms of negotiating with that person. If they say, hey, I think my property is worth 250000 I come back with 200000 it doesn't sound as thought out and as well-hearsed and planned as that's great that you think that, but actually I ran the numbers and I got 187,526 cents. That's yes. probably the best I can do. Yes. So you're using a specific technique. There's specific numbers uh, where you, you, you're making your, your numbers sound exponentially more acceptable and believable because it's hyper-specific. Because yeah, when they say 250, you say 200, you're just kind of spitballing. But when you get down that kind of like 187, 500 and something cents, people think that there's some scientific thought put into it. You, know, you must really know what you're doing. So I tell all my students, make your offers with a specific number because that offer is, is they accept it a lot more. I, I don't want them to say yes right off the bat anyway. I still want them to argue with you, to fight to bring their price up because then they're going to feel like they won. But your initial offer is taken more seriously when it's used with a specific number. So I agree with you there on the arguing with you. So they feel like they won. Talk us through, like, how do you get somebody to feel like they've won in a negotiation without giving up your side of the farm? Yeah. Well, first thing is to feel like they won. They've got to bring you up to their price, quote unquote, their price. Well, that just means you need to start lower than you think and have your target in mind. So I use a technique called bracketing to do that. So it, let's kind of use these numbers we were just using. Let, let, let's say 200,000 is my target. You know, I want to get it for 200,000 because it's a deal at 200,000. But when I ask them how much they're asking for it, they say 250. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is go, ooh, 250? That's a lot. So that's a flinch. So I'm flinching at their number, kind of send a shot across the bow saying that number's not quite right. Um, but now it, when I got to make a starting offer, they're $50,000 high. So bracketing says I want to go the same distance lower. So if they're 50,000 high, I want to go $50,000 lower than my target. My target's 200. So that would be about 150. But remember what I just said, I never want to offer just an even plain old number like that. I want to make it specific. So I would offer 153,579. Yeah. And then zip it and leave it at that. Now I'm bracketed. You know, I'm about the same distance below as they are above. And Matt, where do people tend to meet? We, we meet in the, yep, and then in the middle. We meet in the middle and people know that. And we, so I'm making the middle bracketing means I'm engineering the middle to be where I need it to be. I need it to be a 200. So I've now made that the middle so that they're bringing me up. They're bringing me up to their number as they're coming down to my number, but they still feel like they won because they pulled me off of my initial number. Love it. 
Love it. I think one thing that kind of gets overlooked in this conversation as well is the power of silence. So you mentioned <laughs> just shh and don't say anything. Um, what I will tell you in my two decades of sales experience is that silence is very uncomfortable still. <laughs> However, being silent, you don't, it's, I don't believe in this. Whoever speaks first loses. I think having the silence to make it uncomfortable enough will at least re-engage the conversation or show that you're taken aback by where the conversation is and letting that person know through nonverbal communication. Yes. Yeah. Don't, don't be afraid of the silence because it does. It yeah. makes everybody uncomfortable, but it can re-engage. It can create movement. And a lot of times, the other, most of the time, the other party is going to break first anyway. So just be yeah. quiet. You'd be surprised. I mean, we, we could do it now, but then the listeners will think something went wrong with the show. Even three seconds, five seconds of silence is devastating to people. Long time, long time. So kind of concluding this conversation on negotiation, if I'm listening to this today, like what's one or two things I can take from this conversation that I can go implement with my next deal or even my spouse when they ask me to take out the trash when I know I've done it the past uh, 15 <laughs> well, we, times. Now we might get people into trouble. I know. I, let, let, let's see. Well, I would I would start by flinching every time you hear a number. That, that's the first thing I want you to remember. I want you to create a bracket around your target number so that your target number becomes the middle because then you'll know you'll be moving people to the number. So whatever they say they're asking, go equidistant below as they are above and move in towards that middle. And uh, make sure you use a specific number each and every time. And don't be afraid of silence. Don't be afraid to be contemplative and just slow down and think and let them scramble to say the next word. See, it works. I guess yeah, it does exactly. work. I, I caved. I caved. You got me. Um, all right. Well, uh, part of negotiation is having somebody to negotiate with. Um, so as a, as a guy who's in this space and actively doing deals as well as coaching others and helping them do their deals, I'm interested to hear from your perspective how you're seeing marketing for finding qualified leads these days. Could you shed us some light on like what are you seeing working in today's market for that? Hey, fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you'd like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now back to the show. Consistency works. Have things majorly, you know, everyone wants to think things have majorly changed. I still, some of my best deals are coming from old fashioned marketing techniques, letters and postcards sent to list generated at the courthouse. You know, it, it, classic stuff because it worked particularly in an electronic age. Uh, you know, everyone's uh, sending text messages, but then, you know, they get a postcard, they get a letter, they, they pay attention in a different way these days. So I still like those old school examples. Uh, I also love driving for deals. That, that's just a great way of getting out into your target neighborhoods, spotting properties that look like there's something wrong, doing the research and approaching the owners and trying to put a deal together that way. Those are great marketing techniques. What, what are you looking for when you drive for deals? Asking for a friend. Mm, yeah, fine. Um, it, it, 
is grass overgrown? Is the, uh, is the snow not shoveled? Is the, uh, the house look a mess? Is there broken glass? I mean, you, like you could tell there's between an old window and a new window, a good roof and a bad roof. You can tell that just by looking at it. You know when a house looks like a dump or on the way of being a dump versus, you know, bright, shiny, brand new and, and looking fantastic. So look for those things that are signs of problems like that. And uh, don't be afraid to ask the neighbors. The neighbors, somebody always knows what's going on with that property. Somebody's been asked to keep an eye on it because maybe the person got old and they can't handle it anymore. Maybe, you know, maybe it, it, it's a whole bunch of different things. So you, you look for those telltale signs. They're all out there. I bet if most people look on their own street right now, they'll, they'll go, oh, yeah, that house. Everyone's got that house on their street that they wish somebody would fix up. Well, th- that's what you're looking for when you go to other streets. Be the savior of your neighborhood. Yeah. Are you, uh, are you using any sort of tools when you're driving for dollars? I know Deal Machine is a popular app out there. Are you using any other machine. tools? Love Deal Machine. It's, it's, a, it's the best mix of all sorts of different technology put together into one useful package. And it saves me an enormous amount of time from the old-fashioned way of doing it. You know, the old-fashioned way, you go driving for deals, and you come home with a list of things to do. Now it's just done for you on the app as you go. I love Deal Machine. Yeah. How much are you seeing? Like what markets are you in right now? I'm in the Washington, D.C. area. So that's three states. That's Northern Virginia, D.C. and Maryland. And now that I'm living in Florida, I'm operating in the Tampa and Sarasota area. Okay. Um, I, I just out of curiosity, what are you seeing in terms of like what it costs to get a lead and then cost per deal these days? Cost per lead, what I, I send out a few hundred dollars worth of postcards to each each of my major lists. So, for example, one of my big lists that I love are out-of-state absentee owners. So you know, people that they own a property in your area, but they don't even live in your state. They live some other part of the country or even the world. So my postcards there, the number, I'm, my main counties are usually in that 15, 1600 range, but that's how many there are in a given county. A couple of my larger counties are the 22, 2300. So if you're sending those out monthly, uh, that's a, that's three to $500 worth of postcards going out postage wise. Uh, that keeps that at a comfortable level. Probate marketing is a much smaller list. I usually get about 40 to 45 different names a month. So that's not a major, there's no major impact on, on postage cost. And deal machine doesn't, uh, doesn't cost me anything. Well, I mean, I guess there's gas costs driving around and the cost of the software, but that doesn't bother me because when, when, you know, you're out there, if you blend it into your daily routine, you're out, you're out driving around somewhere, look for properties, have the app running and tag them. And then you can have all the automations firing right from there. So that's, uh, that's a particularly low cost method. Yeah. And when you're sending out 12 to 1600, are, how many of those are coming back as leads? And then I guess, do you have a VA set up to take that? Or are you taking those calls today? No, my, my VAs take the calls. Right? It's a call center that, that, that takes, takes the initial call and then will email me the executive summary of it. I don't like them to have too long of a conversation with the person answering the phone because conversations establish rapport. I don't want them having a rapport with somebody they're not going to be talking to again. I want, I want that rapport with me. Um, usually depending on the list, like out-of-state office owners, it's about one in 36, one in 37, uh, leads turn into a deal. So that'll equate to, that'll equate to about every two, two and a half months. One of those turns into a deal. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And anything you were thinking going into 2024 here about changing strategies or tactics that you've seen pick up over the last couple of months here? I'm just trying to get a gauge for this side of the market. Yeah. Well, overall, Matt, I'm excited. I'm excited for what's happening because with the with most of the major markets slowing down and now kind of the minor markets slowing down, that's good. Uh, everyone else can say what they want about it, but as a creative real estate investor, that's good for us. If the, if if a motivated seller can't just list a property with an agent and have it sell in the next three and a half minutes, then that's good because they have nowhere else to go but to us. So that increases the number of people that need us as creative real estate investors. So I'm excited for what's happening with that. Uh, other industries are, are nervous and fine. That's their industry. That's not ours, right? We're, you know, we have to take what's coming our way and we're going to have a nice deluge of, of motivated seller leads coming our way. So I'm happy about that. What other things have changed? Well, certain things like there was a couple of years of a uh, moratorium on evictions and there's a lot of tired landlords that uh, that's pent up. And now that that moratorium is gone, uh, they're starting to file and there's giant backlog of filings is starting to work its way through the system. So I'm back to, I stopped marketing to tired landlords during the, um, during the, the uh, pandemic, but now I'm marketing to them again because that's starting to open up and, and, and that's going to flow, flow big, I think. Is, uh, eviction records, are those, uh, open? Like, yep. are you able to go see those? Public record. When they file in landlord tenant court, right? It's, gotcha. a, it's a, another public thing. So a lot of this, a lot of the, the courthouse or the, or the county records department, the, those are your best friends. That, don't get me wrong. They're annoying places to be. And it's annoying to do the research. And it's a pain in the butt to do it. But that's going to wipe out 98% of your competition right there because most people aren't focused in on actually getting that work done because, you know, it, it's, it's not fun. But you yeah. do it, the deals are there. The deal's there because no one else is working it. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, obviously you can tell by my uh, statement there that I'm pretty ignorant in the residential like wholesaling space, but um, just for somebody that's been in the business for a while, me not even knowing that just tells you that that's a nice little pond that you could go fish in. Yeah. Well, Tom, fantastic conversation. I want to switch us now to our last round. We're calling this the four toppings. Our okay. first one is what is your favorite <laughs> book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Hmm. Uh, big paradigm shift book is a little a little dated now, but I, I still I think it's every bit as relevant as ever. Uh, author's name is Robert Ringer, and the book is called "To Be or Not to Be Intimidated." It's all about mindset and and holding your frame, and th that's an important part of getting into negotiations. I, I also would think it's in many ways it's kind of about being red pill. I don't think he ever would have used that term because uh, that, that term's probably more recent than his book. But it, it, it's a it's a fantastic book. Will open your eyes to life in the business jungle and how you need to position yourself to survive. Yeah, never heard it. I got to go check it out. Our second one is: What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Hmm. Best piece of advice I've ever received. Uh, I'll give some, I'll give credit to Roger Dawson again, kind of my negotiating mentor on this. It was don't, don't ever assume anything about what you think the other side is going to say or do. Like don't, you, you know, you make a low offer, you think they're never going to take it. Then they take it and you're shocked. 
then the problem is you didn't go low enough because you don't want them taking your first offer because then they're going to they're going to wonder what's wrong when you said yes. So it, it like never prejudicing yourself against, well, that person would never take this offer. Why would they take you know, I would never take that. Well, that's you. That's not them. You're not I don't care. You can have all the empathy in the world. You can walk a million miles in someone else's shoes. It doesn't matter. You'll still never make the decisions that they'll make. So make your offers and make them low and let them respond and see what happens. Had I realized that earlier, I would have had a lot more deals. Yeah. I think uh, one of the classic rules of sales is you only get what you ask for in life. So you yeah. might as well just go ahead and ask. Yeah. Our third one is, what are you most proud of in your life? I'm proud of my family. I, I know that's almost cliche. I'm proud of my family and the life I've created for us and with us. And we all like to do you know, like to be on our own, do our own thing. As my kids grow up, it's interesting having them watch parents that are entrepreneurs and we don't quite fit the mold of what every other kid at school uh, fits. And so it's probably hard to explain, you know, what does your dad do? What does your mom do? Because my wife and I are in the same business. And it, it's that, that's a little difficult, but I'm proud watching them have that realization that you can kind of design things out any way you want as long as you choose to do it. And, you know, avoid horrendous amounts of debt, stay focused on on bringing an income in your business, stay focused on your marketing, be good at that negotiation and watch what happens. Everything can change for you. So when I, I look back on the way my life was heading, it wasn't heading in a great direction. I turned it around with creative real estate investing and I look at everything that's happened, the, the, the freedom, the choices, the travel, the lifestyle, all of that, and the ability to spend a lot of time with my family. I mean, when I when I chaperone school trips uh, and I'm the only dad you know, because that's it. Everyone else, everyone else is at work, but yeah. I'm, I'm not. I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that. Yeah. Love it. Well, our fourth and last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Hmm. <laughs> bowl of ice cream. Or something. Let's see. Uh, on the personal side, I guess I would say it'd be great. Great. be great to sit down with Grace Kelly. Uh, but, uh, you know, let, let's, let's see. And then professionally and, and uh, in all other ways, I would love to meet Winston Churchill. Yeah. You know, actually, I don't think anyone has said him on the show. Really? Yet. And I kind of agree. He would be a great storyteller. Awesome. Probably, uh, very, very witty. Um, yep. you'd have to, uh, take the scotch away from him every now and then. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The cigar smoke might get to be a bit much after a That's while. Right. But That's right. That's right. Look, I, the, he's not, I mean, book wise, I mean, any of his books, most of which are absurdly long and they'll take you a long time to read, but they're awesome. You know, they, they move well, but they're long. Uh, the, what I've learned in terms of being able to keep up with everything, dealing with a bunch of different things at the same time, a, asymmetric, you know, threats for him, which is kind of the asymmetric business that, that, that we tend to be in. Uh, I, I, I always think back to the lessons I've learned from him. So I, I'd love to sit down and, uh, uh, Ice cream, ice cream, cigar, scotch, all good. Yeah. An underappreciated uh, little said answer here. I like it. I like it. Well, Tom, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, learn more about what you got going on or be a, a coaching student of yours, where is the best place we could point them? Well, for negotiation wise, start with my podcast websites, The Art and Science of Real Estate Negotiation. It's at tomzeeb.com. That's T O M. Z is in zebra, E-E-B is in boy.com. And then on the training front, go to tractionrealestatementors.com. Tractionrealestatementors.com. 
Perfect. We will leave all those in the show notes. And then Tom, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.